Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Uh, what we've talked about so far in this series, I'm not going to read uh, all the titles, but you can see the titles on the screen uh, where we've been so far uh, in the series. I, I will point out that foundationally to begin with, I, I was pointing out that being set apart, or if you want to use the churchy word, sanctification, uh, which is really meaning the same thing, that God has eternally, if you know Christ as your Savior, God has eternally set you apart to himself, so that's a done deal. But there's this other part of sanctification where a process is taking place to where God uh, is setting us apart. And we need to set ourselves apart uh, more, allow God to do that, to where we become more and more and more uh, like Jesus. And then from there, we've talked about various aspects of being set apart. Today, I want to talk to you about being set apart for service. Uh, so while I know we've talked about service in some of these other topics, I really felt like foundationally, uh, we need to talk about uh, service today, specifically about how we can be set apart. Last week, uh, we looked at uh, Paul's credentials, kind of in Romans chapter 1. And uh, Paul called himself a servant of Christ. He viewed himself as a servant. And I told you last week, we need to view ourselves as a servant. Now, the apostle Paul was a great servant of Christ, wasn't he? Amen. That's a good place to say amen. But the concept of being a servant to God didn't begin with the apostle Paul. You recognize that. All through the Bible... There are groups of people who are set apart to serve God. There are individuals who are set apart to serve God. And that's what I want us to understand and focus upon today. And hopefully you'll go away with maybe more of an awareness that you yourself, in a very specific way, have been set apart to serve Christ. You've been set apart to serve God, because that's what we're going to look at. We're going to kind of look at a, at a group of people in the Old Testament, and then we're going to see how that even applies to our lives as to how uh, and why we've been set apart for service. The Bible literally teaches this. The Bible teaches that every believer is set apart to serve God. Now, I hope that doesn't come as news to you, uh, because sometimes people get the idea well, people like Billy Graham were set apart to serve God. Or people who are pastors were set apart to serve God. Or people who are missionaries are set apart to serve God. Or people who are evangelists are set apart to serve God. And while all that's true, the Bible teaches that every believer has been set apart to serve God. Matter of fact, the Bible even teaches that every believer is to consider themselves a priest to God. That's the way we're to view ourselves. Now, to help us understand that, we're going to go to the Old Testament to begin with and look at a group there, and then we're going to come over into the New Testament and see what it has to say about you and I as believers in this day and time, serving God like priests to him, being a priesthood of believers to the Lord. So to begin with this morning, I want you to think about a set-apart tribe, a set-apart tribe. And the reason I use the word tribe is because our scripture is going to use the word tribe. Uh, but we're going to talk about this tribe of Levi in, in the Old Testament. Uh, they were specifically set apart to serve God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8 and 9 is one of the passages that talk about this. 
And the Bible says there, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Now, the reason it says to this day at the time Moses was being inspired to write this, they had already been doing it for 40 years or so by the time Moses is recording this and and writing it down. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. In other words, with the rest of the tribes of Israel, the Lord is his inheritance as the Lord, your God said to him, talking about speaking to Levi into the tribe of Levi. So I want you to notice three things about this group in the Old Testament, this, this tribe in the Old Testament. First of all, simply notice that the Bible says they were set apart. They were set apart. It is said there at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi. God divided, he separated, he distinguished, he, he made a, a difference between the tribe of Levi and all the other tribes within the children of Israel. Uh, the, the tribe more or less just means like a branch off, talking about a branch off from this uh, uh, rest of Israel, this uh, specific clan called Levi. Uh, the name Levi, of course, goes to a son of Jacob, but the root word it's built on is kind of interesting. It means to twine, to unite, to remain, to borrow as an obligation or to cause to lend. So even what the root word of the name Levi means maybe gives us a picture of what God's intent was all along with that tribe, that God was going to unite them to himself in a special way, that that God was going to twine them, tie them, so to speak, intertwine them in a special way to himself to serve him, that they were going to remain as his special servants, that they're going to have this obligation to serve God. God set them apart. He divided them. He put them apart as to himself to be his special servants. Now, I'm not sure why God decided to do that with tribe. God's a sovereign God. He can do what he wants to. Amen. But just maybe there could be a reason that God decided to choose the tribe of Levi. Because there's this instance, if you remember, when Moses came down off the mountain and all the people were worshiping what? Golden calf. And yeah, they were involved in it too, the tribe of Levi's. But when, when Moses called out, anyone that's on the Lord's side, come to me. Guess who the only tribe was that ran to him to begin with? The tribe of Levi. So this may be because of their heart for God in that moment. That's why God chose them and God made them to be his special servants. A little bit of background about uh, becoming a, a priest in the tribe of Levi. At the age of 25, they would take a, a male out of the tribe of Levi and they would uh, ceremonially set him apart to be a priest. They would pull him apart and they would uh, uh, sprinkle water on him to ceremony like he was being cleansed. Uh, they, they would wash his garments uh, in, in a special way. Uh, all the hair was shaved from his entire body. Now guys, they didn't have the shave club back then that's online today. That sounds like that might be an, a, an interesting venture to have all the hair shaved off your body in that day and time, you know? I'm not, you know, I don't know if knives, flintstones or what they were using, but I can think of a, you know, better, better thing to ask people to do to me than shave all the hair of my body, you know, with, uh, with, with some type of a blade or whatever. 
Uh, they, they would have a special sacrifice of two young bulls and a grain offering. They would be brought to the door of the tabernacle or the temple, whichever the case might have been, depending on the period we're talking about. And, and all the leaders there would come from the temple and they would put their hands on them, almost like we do when we're ordaining a deacon or ordaining someone to Christian ministry to symbolically say, this person has been set aside to ministry. Then they would do some really menial tasks inside the temple or the tabernacle and they'd have the chance to progress gradually to where they would do more important things. Uh, the more, one of the more important things was even to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. We don't think of that really as being a really important thing in this day and time. We think of the musicians or preachers or, or whatever it might be uh, being important. But one of the very important rules that they could, uh, roles that they could work their way into was just to be a doorkeeper keeper in the house of God. And you know, that means that things like today, our greeter ministry is really important. Amen. Because you know, they, they make first contacts and stuff like that. Now that day in time, the doorkeeper might kill someone if the wrong person is trying to come into the presence of God. It's a whole different world. Hopefully we don't have to do that here at any point in time. But, but anyway, uh, that, that's just a little bit of background about them. So they were set apart. They were set apart to do this though. They were set apart to serve. That's what the Bible said there. To carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, to bless in his name. So notice these three main things that they were set apart to do. A lot of things could be parked underneath these things. But first of all, they were set apart to carry the ark of the covenant. That simply means they to, to lift in, in a various uh, applications. It talks about them lifting something. Now, I just simply want to point out to you, this might seem elementary to you, but they actually had to pick it up and do something with it. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> that means us serving the Lord today still means we have to do something. It's not just a concept where we sit back and we say we're, we're serving the Lord. There, there's things for us to do. They would carry that Ark of the Covenant that had, among other things, uh, those tablets that had the law uh, inside of it. So it's a very important role. And there's a special group even inside the Levites called the Kohathites, who are the ones that were literally set apart to carry the Ark. They were also set apart to stand before the Lord and minister to Him. They were set apart to literally stand there before the presence of God, the very supreme authority of all the universe, and they were there to attend as a menial servant or a worshiper to contribute in some way toward the Lord. Now, that included them offering sacrifices. If you know anything about the sacrificial system, there's this constant smoke going up, constant sacrifices taking place. They included them doing anything like that, from maybe even baking the shoe bread that was put on the table in the tabernacle to uh, trimming the the candlestick uh, that was also there in the tabernacle. Uh, Had all kinds of of things that they may may do, Uh, keeping that candlestick lit, offering prayers to God, but they were there standing before God to minister to him. Now, I want to point out something to you. While they were doing that in that day and time inside the temple, guys, we live in a different dispensation. You'll figure that out in a few minutes. We live in a different time today. You and I aren't just to stand before the Lord and minister to him here. We're supposed to stand before the world and before the Lord and minister to him wherever we are. Amen. That's what we're called upon to do. Third thing it said, they were to bless in his name. And that literally means this. They, they were to, they were to kneel. Uh, it can talk about blessing God or worshiping God or, or, or giving adoration to God. But in this instance, it's talking about blessing other men as a benefit. 
that they were assigned this role as priests or where they were to do things to bless others as a benefit. And that also still ties to us today. We're supposed to be used by God to bless other people in this world as a benefit. Not just bless each other on Sunday morning, but we're to go out and we're to bless other people in the name of of the Lord in his name. And that means this, that doesn't mean you just go up and say, bless you in the name of the Lord. That's pretty easy, isn't it? I mean, I can tell you all that this morning, bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, does that instantly make you feel better? It might, but it literally meant this. They were to bless others in the authority or in the character. When you think about his name, that's what, that's what name means in the Bible. Many times, It meant the character of the person. You and I are to bless others in the character of God. Does that add something to it? You know, it's not just saying, hey, bless, you be blessed of the Lord. We need to function in a way in our lives that we are blessing people acting like Jesus, acting like God in the character of God. And they were called upon to do those things. Third thing I want you to notice about this group in the Old Testament that was set apart specifically to be priests to God before we jump to the New Testament is their inheritance, their inheritance. Because the scripture that I read a moment ago clearly told us that Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance as the Lord your God has said to him. Now, what that means is this, the tribe of Levi did not have the same allotment of territory as the other tribes of Israel. The other tribes of Israel were given these portions. I mean, you could think of it maybe like counties in our state, where our state's divided into these counties or whatever. Well, the tribes were given certain areas, certain portions uh, across the promised land that belonged to them. But that wasn't true of Levi. They were not given their own territory, their own section. To begin with, when they first went in the promised land, there were 13 cities within the promised land that were designated to belong to them. I think later eventually became something like 48 cities across all of Israel. And those cities were the places that were set apart for those uh, priests. Uh, of Levites to go in, in to live. They had a place where they could go and, and live inside of those cities, but they did not have their own specific portion. Now they didn't have to serve all the time. I, I want you to understand that. It's not like if you're a Levite, uh, you're there 24 seven in the temple. Uh, they had it divided up in schedules. And, and, you know, the Levites maybe from this city would come in and, and then this city would come in and they'd rotate in and out as, as they would be there uh, for a certain period of time serving the Lord. Uh, 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 someone in, who was serving as a Levite at uh, age 50 would actually retire and he was more than uh, uh, welcome to stay. Uh, inside the temple and try and help the, the younger uh, priests that were in there. But uh, but he would retire at age 50. That's just something they had set apart. People didn't live as long in that time as what we do today. You know, if we follow that today, I would have retired 12 years ago today uh, on that. Uh, but uh, they, they would retire. They would, they would uh, stop serving all, all the time. But I want you to notice that they did not have, as it mentions here, their own complete territory. They didn't have a portion or an allotment and inheritance just in a, in a large territory. Now, but before you feel sorry for the tribe of Levi, 
because they didn't have a big territory like the rest of the tribes. I want you to notice what their inheritance was. Their inheritance was the Lord God. Amen? That was their inheritance. The the self-existent eternal Jehovah, that's the phrase that's used as a Jewish national name for God. God was their inheritance. God was their occupancy. God was their heirloom. God was their estate. God was their portion. So before we start feeling a little bit sorry for the tribe of Levi, because they didn't have a large allotment of land out here, guys, I've got some news for you. You can keep all the land that you want to keep in this world as long as the Lord's my portion. I'm happy. Amen? The Lord, you know, what is said of them is still true for us today. If you know Christ as your Savior, see, you'll see in a moment that we are in a different uh, dispensation. I said a moment ago in the New Testament, you're going to see in a moment that all believers are supposed to be preached unto God. You'll see that in just a second. But I want to point it out to you now for this reason. That means if you know Christ as your Savior, that means God considers you set apart to Him as, as your priest. And that means this, you have an inheritance with God. No matter, no matter how lean you might feel like your life is, no, no matter how much you see other people have and, and you might get down in the mouth because you don't feel like you have everything that other people have, Remind yourself this, if you have Jesus, you have all you need, amen? If you have Jesus, the Lord is your portion, the Lord is your heirloom, the Lord is your inheritance, and that's all we need to know, that God is our inheritance. And if we will focus upon that, God himself being our inheritance, that ought to give us all the reason in the world to serve him, shouldn't it? So let's move from the Old Testament to the... New Testament, and understand that the Bible in the New Testament teaches that there's a set-apart people. We talked about a set-apart tribe in the Old Testament. Let's talk about a set-apart people, all Christians, as being the servants of God. In the Old Testament, God chose a particular group inside his people that was a tribe of Levi. In this day and time, all believers, the New Testament teaches that every believer, not just a particular group inside believers, but every believer, every Christian has been set apart for service to God. Every believer needs to view themselves as a spiritual house, part of a spiritual house. You're going to see here the Bible is going to teach us that we're a chosen race, that we're a holy royal priesthood, that we're a holy nation, that every believer is a peculiar people set apart for his own possession. That's what the Bible is going to teach us. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. And I'm not going to read it all now. We're going to walk through it. As we look at some things that I want to point out to you about us being priests to God, every believer being a priest to God. Let's talk to begin with about who we are as Christians, who we are as the servants of Christ, who we are as, as priests to God. And we're going to pick up several things, almost all the verses that I said we're going to look at, uh, verse 4 down through verse 9, and then there's still a couple of things we're going to pick up and two more main points. 
But I want you to walk with me through this and let's break this down and see who it tells us we are as the servants of Christ. First of all, we're people who have come and are coming to him. We're people who have come. If you're a Christian, you have come, but we are coming to him. Now, and I'll explain why I put it both ways in a moment. Verse four says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We come to him as a living stone, talking about Christ. Some of the phrases that are, are used there in the, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, we, we come to him, we're literally approaching, we're coming near, drawing near to him. We're, we're worshiping him. We ascend to the fact of who he is. We, we're coming to God uh, and, and we're coming to Christ coming to Christ as him being that, that living stone. He's alive and he's quick. They might have nailed him and put him on a cross and put him in a tomb, but he took his life back up. Amen. We come to him by faith as a, as a stone that's alive. He was rejected by men. And that's more or less talking about Judaism and those Jewish leaders. They, they rejected him. They repudiated him. They disapproved him. They were saying, oh, he can't be our Messiah. They were disallowing him as the Messiah. He, they, he, he was rejected by those men. But in the sight of God, literally means near to God, Christ, this living stone, was chosen. He was selected, God's favorite, God's elect, God's special choice, chosen. In the sight of God, he was precious. He was valued, dear, precious, more honorable. The root word means in a fixed position, he was valued and esteemed in the highest degree. If you want to know what the view of the Father is, of the Son, in a fixed position forever and ever, he values his Son as precious. That means we ought to do the same, doesn't it? So we, we, we come to him, but we are coming to him. We, we come to him by faith, but then we're coming to him in his presence. All of us come to him by faith, but then we ought to live a life of coming to him. That's what I'm saying. We're drawing near to him when we read our Bible, when we pray, when we come to worship. Day, day in and day out, we all view ourselves as, as coming to him, coming uh, toward, toward him. Some might disprove, repudiate, disallow, reject Jesus, but he's writing here, Peter is to believers who have come to him for salvation and are coming to him in his presence. And that still applies to us today. We have come to him as a living stone who was nailed to the cross and buried and took his life back up. We come to him who's a living stone who others trip over and fall to their own destruction because they fail to trust in who he is. We come to him as a living stone who in the sight of God is chosen and precious. We come to him, we're people who come to him and are coming to him. So we keep walking through this passage of scripture. The next thing we're told is this, we come to a living stone, but the Bible tells us we've been made into living stones ourselves. You yourselves like living stones. You is a plural form in the Greek. He's talking to believers. You in the, in that same manner of God takes us, sinful as we were, lost as we were, 
But when we come to Christ by faith, God takes us and views us in the same manner as living stones. Here's one reason for that. I'm alive spiritually today because of Jesus, amen, because of the living stone. And his very righteousness that belongs to Jesus was imputed to me, given to me when I trusted Christ as Savior. So when God looks at me, he sees his son, Jesus. He sees the living stone, so he sees me as a living stone. He he sees you as a living stone also because you have come to him by faith. Christ makes us spiritually alive. Amen. The Bible teaches that we're dead in trespasses and sin. But by being a living stone, this scripture here also teaches us this. We as living stones are placed in a spiritual house. We're being built up together. All believers who are living stones, we're being built up as a spiritual house and also a holy priesthood. He says you are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, the fact that we're being built up, that, that's actually something that, that we focus on in our vision statement. We're to be the body of Christ. That means we're connected to him. He's the living stone. We're living stones who've been connected to him. And we're to build believers. We're to be building each other up. We're to be connecting with God and we're to connect with others so we can help build each other up. But God wants to do that in our lives. He, he wants to build us up. He wants to build us up, not just as individuals, but he wants to build us up corporately to where you and I inserted together like stones in a house being built up, like bricks in a house, you and I are being turned in to this spiritual house. It says we are being built up. It's using the terminology about construction. Uh, and God is doing that in our lives spiritually. He's turning us into a non-carnal, spiritual, supernatural dwelling or temple. In the Old Testament, where those priests went to the tabernacle or the temple and they served inside that, in the New Testament, guess what? You and I have become the temple of God. God doesn't live in a tent in the wilderness. God doesn't live in some fancy temple that's being built somewhere and and live in a back room inside of it. God lives in our lives. That's why we are to be a a spiritual, supernatural dwelling for God. And he's turning us into this holy priesthood. We're to consider ourselves sacred to God, consecrated. We're part of a priestly fraternity to where you and I have things that we need to perform and do for him. If you know Christ as your savior, you need to view yourself as that. Don't sell yourself short. You need to understand you're part of this spiritual house that God is building. He's made you a living stone to fit into his kingdom, to fit into his house. And you need to recognize yourself as a believer, as someone he has set apart just as surely as he set apart the Levites in the Old Testament. He has set you apart and he has set me apart unto himself to where he considers us sacred and consecrated. To where we're to carry out priestly activities for him. So we need to live our lives as being sacred. And we need to live our lives as being consecrated. And we need to recognize as priests they're actually Functions, there are things for us to be involved with, things for us to do. Believers together are built up as God's spiritual house, as part of his family. We're now the temple of God, and as such, we're to serve God in this spiritual house. 
You see, he, he talked about us coming to a living stone. As a living stone, that means this for you. As a living stone being put together with other living stones, that means you have a purpose in your life to perform and carry out within the church. Have you ever thought about that? Have you asked yourself or asked God, God, what's my purpose? God, why have you sent me to day three church? God, where do I fit in? What's my role? What am I supposed to be doing? I hope this doesn't shock some of you, but God has planted you at day three church to do more than just show up on Sunday morning. God wants to take you with the abilities and the talents that he's woven into your life, with the changes that he's made in your life since you come to Christ. And God wants to plant you inside his kingdom, inside his spiritual house. Not just this local church, but the church itself. He wants to plant you as a living stone connected to other living stones. To where we build up this spiritual house. What happens if you're building a house and all of a sudden there are massive sections of the wall that's not there? It's not really a very good protective house, is it? The wind can get in, the, the, the rain can get in, someone can just, you know, walk through the, the wall without having to break in the windows or anything else to break into your house. And, and I'll, that's kind of a picture of how the church is. Because the church isn't the full spiritual house we're supposed to be until every believer is living their purpose, living their life, serving God in the function that he wants you to serve him in the house that you've been placed. Look what Ephesians tells us here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's who you used to be. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Apply that to the church. Yes, the local church and the church uh, as a whole. We as believers, we need to view ourselves as being in this structure. We're connected to Christ. He's the, he's the cornerstone. I'll probably say this later. I may not. I'm saying it now. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But in that day and time, they would put a, a, a main stone down, a cornerstone to begin with. And from that large cornerstone, from that cornerstone, they would pull the plumb line and everything and everything else would be in line to this large cornerstone. That ought to be the way we view our lives. Christ is our cornerstone. We're to be connected to him and line our lives up with him because he's the chief cornerstone in our lives. We are living stones in his building. And think about that for a moment. Think about it in these terms. If he calls believers living stones, you get a stone by doing what? You go to a quarry. And you cut it out and you turn it into a stone. Well, in terms of what Jesus is doing for us, every time somebody comes to Jesus, God reaches down and quarries out a stone out of the pit of sin. That's where that stone comes from. And he takes it out and he cuts it just like he wants you to be. And he has this special shape for you and he wants to insert you into his kingdom He wants to insert you into his family. He wants to insert you into his church to serve him. As we walk through this passage in verse 6, it also tells us this. We're people who can believe in him 
without worry or shame. If you come to Christ, you don't have to worry about being ashamed that you've come to Christ. If you come to Christ and you have really trusted Christ, you don't have to worry someday in a day of judgment standing before God and being ashamed because God will not be looking at you. He'll be looking at the finished work of his son upon the cross. That's what he'll see in that in that day and time. When you talk about the judgment seat, oh, there's a, a place for judgment for believers, the judgment seat of Christ, where where our, our works will, or will be judged. But as far as you being judged for your sin, if you're a believer, that will never happen. And here's why. God judged all of it through his son on the cross. Man, that's good news, isn't it? Everything that Lynn Parsons has ever done on his 62 years on the earth and everything I'll ever do between now and the time he takes me home to be with him, guess what? Jesus fully paid for it. It's all fully taken care of. But look at what he says here. For it stands in Scripture. In other words, it stands written. It's always going to be true. He said, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a chief stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That's God's viewpoint. And then it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God tells us that it's so settled in Scripture, all around, all through, in a fixed position, and in Holy Scripture. God has laid, he's, he's laying in, in that phrase in the Greek, means in the widest application possible. He's laid in Zion. He's laid on a hill in Jerusalem, a stone, his chief cornerstone. But that's also used figuratively for the church triumphant as being part of where God has laid this stone. So I want you to think about it like this. Yes, God sent his son into this world like that living stone, but I want you to view it like this. He was rejected. He was repudiated by men like we talked about a moment ago, but this stone that everyone else had rejected, guess what has happened? By them rejecting that stone, the full purpose of God was taking place to begin with because the way God fully laid his stone, laid his living stone, laid his son in this earth is this. He was crucified on a hill in Jerusalem. He was crucified and he paid full penalty for our sins. They put him inside a stone carved out to be a tomb. They rolled a stone thinking they sealed it up. But he takes his life back up and he's a living stone forever and ever and ever. Here's how God laid his stone for us. His stone was crucified for us and took his life back up for us. That through him, you and I can have everlasting life. He placed his son as that cornerstone, that chief cornerstone. God said he's chosen and he's precious to me. And then he said this, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So let's talk about that whole phrase for a minute. The one who has faith in Christ, who's entrusted their spiritual well-being to Jesus, you believed in Jesus, that person who believes in him, the word in literally means over upon. It speaks of resting in him, a direction towards him. Those of us who have rested upon the finished work of Jesus, upon Christ, what he's done for us, He uses an absolute negative here. He he says we will absolutely never, ever be shamed down or disgraced or put to blush. There will never be in my life or in my eternity a time that I have to worry about being put to shame because I believed in Jesus. Amen. Jesus will never let me down. We're not talking about a human religious leader. 
<laughs> you have human religious leaders make problems and, and have faults all the time. An interesting stat in a, what I call a quad report, I referred to that last week that I get from the Baptist State Convention where we went to Union County to try and help the churches there look at unreached uh, pockets inside Union County. Well, I asked for a new quad report for Granite Falls. You know what it says about religious leaders? 76% of people distrust religious leaders. Why? Because so many public religious leaders have fallen or do unbiblical things or do things they shouldn't do. Live in $2 million homes and stuff like that. You know, while people around them are hungry. But while people might be ashamed of religious leaders, we're not talking about religious leader. <laughs> we're talking about Jesus. And there's never a time in my life I have to worry that I will be ashamed of Jesus. He's never, ever going to let me down. He didn't let me down when he's in this world. He lived a perfect, sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood for my sins. He will never, ever let me down. And on top of that, there's never a time when I stand before God, as I alluded to a minute ago, I'm going to have to be ashamed or blush because of what Jesus did for me. My sins are forgiven. We, we don't have to worry as believers about being someone who will be shamed down or disgraced because it tells us in a fixed position in Scripture, God has placed His Son on the cross for our sins. And I'll never, absolutely, ever have to worry about being put to shame. Let's keep walking through this passage. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Bible also tells us here this as we're thinking about you and I as believers being preached to God. We're just looking at who we are right now. We're going to look at what we're supposed to do in a minute. But who we are as believers, we are also people who have the benefit and honor of believing in Christ. Look at the way this is phrased here. So the honor is for you who believe. Stop and think about that for a minute. (laughs) That is God writing in his scriptures... That there's honor for us who believe. We don't tend to think of it in those terms, do we? That it almost seems like it's, we shouldn't think about it like that. But he's telling us that there's honor for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Some translations say the chief cornerstone in a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that might flip you out, that destined to do part. And we'll talk about that in just a second. He, he tells us it's an honor. Look, look at some of the words that's used here. He, he said that it, it's something that ought to be a, a value to us. Why is it an honor for us? Because there's a price paid for us. God esteemed us. God honored us. He showed how much he loves us and how much he esteems us by putting his son on the cross. That's why it's an honor for us. The root word there means to pay a price or a penalty. That's what God did for us. He paid the full penalty, the full price for my sin and for your sin when he died upon the cross. That's why it's an honor for us when we entrust our spiritual well-being to Christ. It's an honor that we can actually believe in Jesus. But on the other hand, 
Those who do not believe, those who are unbelieving, disbelieving, the implication there means to disobey, and you'll see the word disobey in a minute. The root word means active disbelieving. In other words, it's somebody that keeps on saying no, keeps on saying no, keeps on saying no, keeps on refusing to believe Jesus is who he says he is. Keeps refusing to admit to God that they're a sinner and they can't save themselves. He's refusing to, to, to admit their only hope is Jesus and, and, and recognize that God loved them so much he paid the full price for their sin on the cross and what they need to do is trust in what Jesus did. Plus nothing, minus nothing. You just have to believe and take God at his word. But, but instead, they have this active disbelieving. So those that are so disbelieving, God has Peter to write these words, the stone that the builders rejected, And by the way, that's talking about all that religious crowd, (laughs) all the Pharisees and the, the, the priests and everything in the day of Jesus, when he was walking around evident that he was serving God and he was the one doing the miracles and they were jealous of him and they were saying, oh no, that can't be the Messiah. The ones that those religious leaders disapproved, disallowed, rejected, repudiated, that same one has become the cornerstone. God has caused the one to be that was rejected. God has generated in the phrase there in the Greek means with great latitude. It is saying this, God really, 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 really took that stone that was rejected by people and with great latitude, with great emphasis, God has made him the chief cornerstone. And because of that, he's also a stone of stumbling. People are stubbing their toes. It's really a figurative word for apostasy. People are tripping up over him. And the, the root word means to, to beat the breast in grief. Like, oh God. You see, that's what's going to happen when people have tripped over Jesus and tripped over Jesus and they fail to believe. There's going to be a day standing before God in great grief. It's going to be like, God, God, how did I miss it? God, how, how did I not trust in him? Because instead of believing in him, it being an honor. <laughs> That's why it's an honor for us to believe. But for those who disbelieve, they're tripping over Jesus to their destruction. He's right there. God laid him there. God's made it evident I mean, a a huge cornerstone is pretty easy to see. God's made it evident in the scriptures that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And that he's done exactly what he said he would do. And yet people just keep tripping and tripping and tripping over Jesus. And eventually, if they never say yes to Jesus, it's going to lead to their destruction. God laid that, that cornerstone of that building we talked about earlier. That place of honor, that's Jesus. That cornerstone is what makes the foundation stable and the walls true. And that's what Jesus does for our lives. He gives me a stable foundation to trust in for all eternity. He gives me a plumb line to keep my life in line to him if I'll just follow him. He gives me a line to do that. But for other people, he's going to be the stone of stumbling He's going to be a rock of offense. Interesting phrase there because the word rock of offense uses the word petra, which means a massive rock. It means a a huge foundational rock. That's who Jesus is. 
There's a passage of scripture where Jesus is asking the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And they give all these answers. And then Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Christos. You're the son of God. And that's when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, thou art Peter. But he used a different word when he was calling Peter the rock. He used the word Petra, which means a small kickable rock. And then I think this is what happened. Some people believe different things. Some people think it's based upon Peter's confession that Jesus is saying this. Some people, the Roman Catholics, believe that, that Peter was made into the huge rock when he used the word Petros. I think here's what happened. I think Jesus looked at Peter and he said, you're Peter, you're a little small kickable rock. But upon me, the Petros, upon the foundation stone, I'm going to build my church. Amen. He's the foundation stone. But for those who do not trust in him, he's going to be that stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It, there's the word offense it is a Greek word, scandalon, and it means a trap stick or like a, a sapling snare being set up. It talks about a trap used to catch something. It means an occasion of fall or stumbling. And he said they stumble. They're, they're striking their feet over the cornerstone because they disobey. They're, they're willfully and perversely disbelieving what the Bible says about Jesus is what it means there to disobey. They're, they're, they're disobeying the logos, the expression that is Christ. And that means they're going to fall just as they were destined to do so. Don't let that trip you up too much. Here's what I believe when you start talking about things like predestination. The Bible nowhere teaches that God predestines people to hell. But the Bible does teach that God is such a sovereign God that he knows who will believe and who will not believe in advance. Guys, I hope that doesn't cause you a problem because I want my God to be big enough. He knows everything. Amen. But it doesn't mean that these people never had a chance to believe. I just want you to understand this. The main thing I'm trying to point out from those two verses, verse seven and eight, is that there's a great benefit in trusting Christ. And those who believe in Christ have their sins paid for by his sacrifice on the cross. But the reverse is true. There's a great fall into eternal destruction for those who reject Jesus. You might say this based on the word scandalion. We get our word scandalous from that Greek word. You could put it like this. It's a very scandalous thing for you to reject Jesus. The most scandalous thing you could ever do in your life is to reject Jesus Christ instead of believe in him. Who are we? That's what we talked about all, all through that passage of scripture. We've been set apart in verse 9. We're a people, we're still talking about who we are. We're a people who've been set apart to God. Peter writes these words inspired of God. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may not view yourself like that. Please don't miss these scriptures. He's writing this about you. He's writing this about all believers. He's saying you were chosen, you were selected. By the way, that's the same phrase that he used to talk about selecting his son to be the Messiah. That his son was chosen to be that chief cornerstone. And he now has chosen us through Jesus, through our faith in him, for us to be a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. 
You may not feel like it, but from God's perspective, if you know Christ is your Savior, you've been birthed into a royal family. You're kingly in nature. You belong to the one that's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who you are. He views you as a, as a royal priesthood, someone to carry out priestly functions for him. You're a holy nation. God views you as a believer as being sacred and pure, morally blameless. He, he views you as being consecrated, a saint set apart to himself as his own race, as his own nation of people. God views you as this. You're a people for his own possession, a people in general, but it means this, you come to the point that you are acquired by God. You now are God's acquisition. God chose you, he bought you, he purchased you with the shed blood of his son. Don't miss that. That's who you are. That's what God says about you. You are all those things if you're a believer. But because you are all those things, it's not about just who we are. It's also about what are we supposed to do as the servants of Christ. I spent all this time talking to you about who we are. I want you to understand that we're, we're priests. The Bible calls us priests, believers, priests, just as surely as the tribe of Levi was. But I want you to see two main things as we keep going here through 1 Peter that we're supposed to do as the servants of Christ. Number one, we're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. You and I are supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. He says in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We're to do non-carnal things. God wants us to do spiritual things. We need to view those things as a sacrifice, our lives even as a sacrifice that's acceptable to God, that will be well received, that's approved of God. How in the world can we do that? It says through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the channel of the act. The way you and I can do things that please God is through Jesus because of our faith in him. Look at what Romans 1, I mean Romans 12 says uh, real quickly and then I'll, I need to move on fast. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, in other words, in view of everything God's done for you as a believer, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The short of that is simply this. If you're saved, you've received the mercy of God. In light of the mercy of God, God has a perfect will for your life. You ought to offer your body to live out that perfect will. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said something that I think applies to us. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Think about that. We do a lot of good things in this world and maybe we enjoy. The only thing that's going to last is what we do for Jesus. That, that's why we need to be focused on doing things that will last. So the first thing we're supposed to do is that. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. And the second thing we're supposed to do, found in the second part of verse 9, as you and I view ourselves as priests to God, we're supposed to proclaim the, God's excellencies, the excellencies of God. It says there in the second part of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We don't really have time for all those word studies that I've got included in that. The short of it is simply this. Because God has saved you. Because God has redeemed you. Because God views you as being his spiritual house. Because God views you as being his holy nation. Because God views you as being his royal priesthood. We have something to do. You and I as believers, we need to be proclaiming in this world the excellencies of Him. We need to proclaim in this world how great He is, the magnificence of Christ, all that He is. We need to be proclaiming His valor, His excellence all throughout this whole world because He called us from darkness. He called us from the realm of sin. He called us from the danger of spending eternity separated from Him. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hebrews 13 verse 15 and 16 tell us this. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you're a priest, and God says you are, if I'm a priest, that means we're supposed to be proclaiming the excellencies of God. One last thing. You might be asking yourself, well, why should I do that? You know, we're good at being rebellious. You ever tell your children to do something and they say, well, why? Why do I have to do that? So us as rebellious children who are Christians, we might be sitting there stubborn in our own will. And we might be thinking, well, God, why do I have to do that? Why, why should I serve you as a priest? How about this as a reason? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When you read that in the Greek, it means absolutely there was a time when you absolutely were not part of God's people. You absolutely had not received mercy. But since he's writing to believers, the context of that is for us this morning. If you know Christ as your Savior, you didn't used to be part of the people of God, but now you are. You didn't used to have the mercy and the grace of God, but now you do. What better reason in all the world, in all of our logic, in all of our intellect can we come up with as to why we ought to serve God, why we ought to be his priest, other than I didn't used to belong to him and now I do. I didn't used to have mercy, but now I do. And that means I ought to spend my life serving him. As Christians, the Bible says we've been set apart for service. You as a believer, you have been set apart just as clearly as if you were part of the tribe of Levi. God called you to himself. He has set you apart to himself. He says you're his priesthood and there's things that he wants you to do. So can I ask you this question? What are you doing to serve Jesus? And I'll also put a quick advertisement in today from 4 o'clock until 5.30. If you're not serving God in some way at Day 3 Church... They're going to have a training class upstairs 
about volunteer ministry and our greeter ministry. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I wish I knew what I could do for God, how I could serve God. If you'll come today from 4 until 530, they'll help you get plugged in and help you figure out how you can serve God in a better way in day three church. But I recognize today while I've been preaching to believers, reminding us, hey, we ought to do something. We're, we're priests to God. We ought to do something. I, I recognize not everyone might be a believer today. So before we have the band come out and do this thing called an invitation, I want to read another passage of Scripture. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, we talked about Jesus being the stone that was rejected. Well, here in Acts, Luke writes these words. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. He's, he's writing down what was, what was proclaimed. Luke had recorded this for all time for people to read. This Jesus, who was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The short of it is, if you're a believer, you need to be doing something to serve him. You're his priest. The short of it is, if you're not a believer, the only way, the only hope, there's not salvation in any other. There's only salvation in one, the name of Jesus. And if you don't know Christ today, why not trust in him today? Father, God, help us to do a better job being your servants. Help us to view ourselves as being priests to you. But Father, we also pray right now, if there's anyone in this place that doesn't know you, that you'd help them to see all that you did for them how you sent your son to be the living stone, how you sent your son and he was crucified on a hill in Jerusalem and he paid the full penalty for our sins. God, we pray that you would give people the faith they need today in Jesus if they've never trusted in him. Help them to do it right now in this moment. And Father, help for the rest of us to not just see ourselves as servants, but to go forth from this place and be servants. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.